Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am here today with a very interesting topic. So we have Travis Hornsby on the show today, and Travis is the founder of Student Loan Planner. He's got a really interesting story, which we'll get into in a little bit, but I think this is a really interesting show because there's kind of two aspects of growth. It's how much you're making and how much you're spending. And as all attorneys know, (laughs) it is tough to graduate law school these days without a lot of debt. So we're going to see about some creative situations. I'm not sure creative would be the word, but some solutions that Travis and his company have come up with to helping lawyers just like you get out of the student loan dilemma. So thanks for being on the show, Travis. Oh yeah, great to be here. All right, awesome. Let's kind of get started with sort of the situation as a whole. So you guys have worked with hundreds of lawyers, but can you kind of tell us either some anecdotes of some people you've worked with or any industry stats about what it looks like? Not that other people (laughs) don't know already from, from firsthand experience, but what's kind of average student debt situation that an attorney is facing today? Yeah. So our average is about 225,000. So that's like over a little under 300 attorneys that we've advised about about 4,000 clients total for us, about a one point little over a billion dollars basically is what we've advised total. So we're the largest student loan specific consulting group in the country. So we've seen some, definitely seen some pretty wild stuff. So I don't need to tell your listeners, you guys know that in the legal field, there's kind of like a bimodal distribution of salaries. Maybe you could even say trimodal because you've got the big law salaries. So you've got the 180, 190K and up, and then you've got the small family law office making 80, 90K. And then you've got public interest law where you're making 40, 50, 60K. So that's a lot of different ranges of salaries. And you know, if you listen to like most popular personal finance advice, it's just sort of a one size fits all pay off your debt strategy. And that's just not really what you need to do with student loan debt because it's sort of a, it's a government program that has caused the debt to be pretty high. It's increased access to law school, which is really good. But the thing is, is we're kind of taking all of our old tools in the toolbox and trying to fight a problem that's like totally different and and needs unique solutions. So I'm not saying that everybody should go for forgiveness, but significantly more people should go for forgiveness and are currently going for it. And we have the math to back it up. Yeah. And we were talking about this a little bit on the pre-call, but there's a lot of different people and not just people who recently graduated law firms, but like as far as clients too, I mean, do you have any sort of averages or, or anything you could tell us about the distribution of ages? Because I'm sure it's not just people who graduated, right? I would say the average age of our clients is probably 30 because we have a lot of people that we advise a few years out of school. We have people that we advise immediately following school, so 25, 26, 27, right? And then we have people that you know are in their mid-30s and thought they were going to make more progress in their loans than they did, and they're wondering what the heck happened. So I would say that's probably a, a typical average. I would say our average client is engaged to be married or just got married and is trying to navigate the complexities of income-based repayment with including a spouse's income in the picture too. They're trying to buy a house or maybe they just already bought a house. Maybe they are expecting their first or second kid and they're trying to make the finances of daycare work with also their student loans. And maybe they're trying to switch careers. See this all the time where somebody will go into big law and say, you know what, I'd like to have my life back even if it means making less money, how do I do that when I have $300,000 from a private law school, right? So the, the thing that I see is being in a legal field, it's not necessarily sort of a super stable thing where you're going to do one job for 30 years. So what I see a lot of is people 
that are in lower paying jobs that are trying to work their way into a higher paying job or people that are in those higher paying jobs that are looking to have a little bit more of a lifestyle job and go into corporate or something in-house, right? Or maybe even going public interest route. So like the one key idea I want to introduce to the podcast listener here is the idea of student loans being a tax. So if we had a system like they have in the UK where they charge you 9% of your income for 30 years and they give you a deduction of about 30 grand. So it's pretty transparent that that's an income tax or your debt is just a debt. And the reason why people don't view student loans in the United States as an income tax is because our system is a lot more complicated. So in the case of a public interest lawyer, you're having to pay 10% of your income for 10 years with no taxes on any of the forgiven balance at the end of those 10 years. So that's a example of student loans very transparently being a tax. Well, why do people not view it as a tax? Well, the PSLF program, Public Service Loan Forgiveness, has gotten tons of bad press. There's all kinds of headlines out there, 99% rejection rate, things like that. The reason that happened is because Congress passed changes to the student loan rules that basically made it so that you couldn't really qualify for this unless you have direct loans. Well, direct loans didn't really start getting issued except 2010 mostly and beyond. So a lot of these lawyers that would be applying before 2020 would have had incorrect loans, which would have got them a rejection rate, and they only would have applied if they didn't know that they didn't qualify. So you have this false headline that's generated. So now people don't trust loan forgiveness, even though I talk to people all the time that are getting their loans forgiven tax-free. So that's, that's one route towards loans forgiveness, and then there's the other route to loan forgiveness. So the other route to loan forgiveness is you're working in a private sector job, and instead of paying for 10 years based on your income, now you're paying for 20 or 25 years based on your income. And the only catch is when your balance is forgiven, you have to pay income taxes on that forgiven balance. Now that seems stressful, but you can actually prepare for it by simply putting aside a certain percentage of your income, usually it's 5 to 10% of your income, into an investment account alongside your required payment. And then you'll be able to pay that tax liability at the end of those 20 or 25 years. So in other words, student loan debt is either a tax or debt. And if people realize that, then the, the, the student loan debt that they have would not be changing their life decisions, would not be influencing their life decisions, and it wouldn't be the mental health stressor that it is today. Yeah, that's super interesting. And it kind of feeds into some of the classic narratives that you were bringing up earlier. It's like a lot of times, and this is a law firm growth podcast, and some of the, the more vocal listeners that have reached out a lot of these people are, it tends to see, I would say for a lot of people that are graduating law school today, maybe they just have a more entrepreneurial spirit because of how they came up in the world. And maybe it's just that the option is that they don't have the big law job. So they're going into this stuff a lot earlier. But this is a huge solution to overcome because the default solution to that is just kill yourself for five or 10 years working in big law, pick up a lot more gray hairs than you're, you're going to otherwise. And if that's an option not to have, then I think people should absolutely explore that. It's kind of interesting. I was, uh, not to make this too political, but interesting guy that I was, I was following a little bit earlier was Andrew Yang and his, is his bid for the, the Democratic candidacy. But he actually had sort of a similar thing, which I think was based off that European program that you had. So basically what you're saying is that the tools are here, but it's just the way that it's set up as a program right now makes it extremely difficult to navigate. Is that right? Well, yeah, the tools are here and they're just not obvious. So the, the problem with the, the difference in comparing our system to the European system is the European system strictly regulates what universities are allowed to charge. So our system doesn't do that. So our system changed in 2006, where the idea was a noble one to expand access to professional degree programs. 
the way they did that was saying instead of putting a cap on borrowing like you do for Stafford loans where you can only borrow up to 40500 a year or 20500 for a law degree, instead of having a cap on borrowing, now we're going to allow you to borrow an unlimited amount up to the cost of attendance through the federal system. So in the UK, you're very regulated on how much you're allowed to borrow for your education, whereas in the US, you're not, you're not regulated at all. And so what happened is starting in 2006, you had a lot of schools that realized they could literally charge anything as long as people would sign up. And what happened in 2008, 9, 10, 11, the legal job market got really bad press. So in contrast to some other fields like dentistry or medicine or, or something like that, that didn't necessarily have a bunch of bad Wall Street Journal headlines with, hey, is this field worth it anymore economically? The law field, the legal field had, that, had those headlines. So there's been a little bit of cost resistance just because of a little bit of an awareness of the legal job market not being the slam dunk guarantee that it, people might have thought it was. And, and so people just need to realize now, like I think there's a little bit more awareness of that, but there's not really that good of awareness of if you go into a big law job and you want to start your own firm, you, you know, say you go to Columbia Law School, let's say three hundred four hundred thousand dollars of student loan debt, and you go there and you come out, then you're making what is the current associate salary? Is it one ninety still? Oh, geez, I I know honestly, I, I know way more about the, the small family firms as far as gross revenues than the actual salaries <laughs> of big law because it's not really who we work with. Well, I mean, let's let's even talk about the small family firms. I mean, so you're you're making guaranteed money versus not guaranteed money. So you're making eighty to one hundred k a year in the associate world, and you think. You got to say you have two hundred thousand of debt, and you think, well, I've got to pay off my two hundred thousand of debt before I can do my dream of starting my own firm. So, say you have that mindset. Well, after taxes, maybe you bring home five thousand a month, and let's say you have to live on. Let's say you're living super frugally, and you live on two k a month from that. So, you have maybe three to five k a month that can go into loans. Let's just call that forty to sixty k a year. So, if you have two hundred k plus interest and everything you're talking about a minimum of five years before you're able to take your dream of starting your own practice by the horn, so to speak. So that's, that's a long time and things can happen in those five years. What I kind of typically see will happen is somebody who has this dream, they'll meet their future spouse <laughs> and they'll become a little bit more risk averse. Maybe they'll pick up a mortgage. Maybe they'll have a kid or two and then they'll start thinking, shoot, that guaranteed job with health insurance feels pretty good and I don't feel like I can take a risk. So instead, if you realized that your future goals are, I want to run my own office and I want to have a 100K income target, that's my goal. But how do I do that with my 200,000 of student loans? So if you're running your own office, you can set up a 401k plan. You can do tax planning to be really cognizant of what your taxable income is. And you can realize that your student loans are just a percentage of that taxable income. So if you focus on reducing your taxable income, your student loan payment could be quite low. So if you, if you take into account it's, it's 10% of your discretionary income, right? But let's say you're married and, and all that. Well, you could get into a situation where you could exclude your spouse's income if you know what you're doing by filing taxes, married, filing separate. Then you could max out your retirement account and reduce the percentage they're taking on your loans. And so you could get your payment on your $200,000 in student loans down to 500 a month, let's say. And then in the first year after law school graduation, your priority instead of paying down your loans is to build up an emergency fund that's going to have at least six months to a year's worth of expenses in it, which is going to give you the fuel you need to go take the risk of starting your own practice and the runway to get to the point where that practice is profitable so that when you do start hitting all these major milestones, you don't have to go immediately abandon it. 
because you've already kind of lasted long enough to get up that ramp, right? So for any small business that I've seen, at least most of them, maybe you can tell me if this was not the case for the people you talked to, Jan, but most of them don't immediately become successful. Is that fair? Yeah, I would. <laughs> that's a yeah understatement. Yes. <laughs> A couple of lawyer friends I talked to that done their practice, they say that sort of the first couple of years are they're like take anything kind of lawyers. It's like, oh, you want me to write a will? Like I want to do IP law, but okay, it pays. <laughs> and so there's this desperation to sort of get any revenue you possibly can in the first couple of years. But the, the main thing is just sort of hanging around. Most small businesses fail, I would say for two reasons. One is they don't have a, a focus or a niche, if you will. And then the second reason is they don't hang around long enough to be successful. So in other words, you, you abandon the the goal before you have time to realize it. I was going to say, and it, it, it's it's actually something that we were kind of talking about in a recently released podcast, which is kind of having the discipline to have the niche thing. And like one of the point blank, one of the most expensive things about niching down is saying no to grandma's will or your cousin's landlord tenant issue or something like that. And it's almost a different rat race to escape. It's like, okay, cool. Maybe you're not fighting to get out of the business and start your own thing. But there's people that we've run into. And gosh, I actually, I spoke to a guy who was a prospect not too long ago. And this guy was probably in practice for 30 or 40 years. And this guy still was charging, I think a thousand dollars for, and this guy only did trust in states. He only charged thousand dollars for the same stuff that I would say in most markets in the United States for somebody who's a specialist, they're charging 25 to 35. Why? Because he's kind of stretched to the end of his rope. and He's just been having that same year over and over again. So the, the prospect of being able to start from the right foot, take the right kind of clients, build up a reputation as being a specialist from day one is something that honestly, I've taken those couple of years of just being the door lawyer and eventually getting ahead to the point where you can do that as, as a given. So if that's something that you're saying that people could actually start from the jump, then that would be extremely positive and save people not maybe not a couple of years, maybe a couple of decades, depending on how those those years play out. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have to give yourself the best chance of success, but you, again, you also need the runway. So, yeah. you know, if you're if you're wanting to build a 747 or if you're wanting to take off in a 747, you're gonna need a lot, you're gonna need a mile long runway at the airport, right? I mean, so it's kind of like that when you're trying to build your own legal practice. Like you're not going to be able to get off the ground if you don't have sufficient sort of velocity. And how do you get to that sufficient velocity? Well, you have to attract clients. Well, that takes time. Even if you're the best person in the world at filing trademark applications, and that's what you're, you want to do. You know, you're not going to immediately get SEO traffic from Google the second you put your web page up. That might take six months before Google even recognizes your page. And if you can niche down even further beyond, you know, maybe, maybe you're only in a particular industry in the state of Georgia or something like that. I mean, what is the reason why somebody would work with you versus a major multinational kind of firm or something. I mean, or, you know, ma major law firm. I mean, so yeah, maybe cost, but you want to think about yourself as being sort of the, the craft beer, so to speak. How do you compete against Budweiser, right? You have a craft beer that's unique and that they could never do because it's very unique and specialized, right? So the, the, the thought process there is what does that exit velocity require? It requires cash. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't, you don't want to go borrowing because you're not going to, have a, a surefire thing that's going to happen. And then you could just be stuck with a bunch of personal and credit card debt. That's not a good way to do it. So what, what I think is you should plan for two to three years. I think you should plan for two to three years in a worst case environment. And so that does mean being pretty frugal in the first phase of your career. So maybe you're living with roommates. Maybe you're, if you have a sympathetic other, you're, you're living in a, an apartment that's one bedroom smaller than what you'd prefer. Maybe you're having, if you have kids, maybe you're having the kids all sleep in one room. I mean, you have to be creative. The biggest thing I see is, is for cash burn 
is simply your real estate expenses and then transportation expenses. So those are the two big ones that I see. So if you can minimize those, and then you can ask yourself the question, how do I get to two or three years worth of cash runway? And yes, it's okay to take this risk despite having the 200,000 of student loan debt, because the student loan debt, again, is a percentage of your income. Well, guess what? If you go start your own law firm, guess what your new income is? It's zero dollars. So what you can do is go to studentaid.gov, immediately request a recertification of your income. And if you're pursuing a forgiveness plan anyway, if that's your default plan that you were planning on, that you're going to get $0 a month on your student loans. It's also going to count towards forgiveness. If your plan is to eventually pay off the debt, then you might opt to sign up for something called the revised pay-as-you-earn plan specifically, which is going to give you subsidies on your interest that would amount to half of all of your interest covered by the government during this time while you're trying to start your law practice. If, you, or if you're married and you're trying to exclude your spouse's income, you might choose the pay-as-you-earn plan because that allows you more flexibility in that regard. But either, without getting into the technical details, what you should know as a, as a listener is if the goal is to run your own law firm, then you want to get started as soon as possible. You want to use the guaranteed income of being an employee to stash away savings and build up your cash reserves, which is going to allow you to have that longer runway to give you more space to take off. Yeah. And just to circle back on one thing too, Travis. So I think you mentioned saving up for that, let's call it a three to six month runway and a little bit more of a, well, I guess conservative slash maybe not starting a fully fledged business thing. Would putting money into a savings account like that, would that be counted as something that you could deduct from your income? Well, no, but I mean, if you're an employee, you're just saving money. I mean, if you start your own law firm though, I mean, at that point you might be able to deduct certain things. So for example, let's say your first six months in practice, you have a lot of losses because you don't have as much revenue as you have expenses. You can carry forward those losses and write that off against future business income. So for example, things like a leasing an office space or software expenses or license expenses. If you have that negative net profit, but you can write that off against your future income. You can't deduct that against your employee income while you're building the savings though. Okay. Gotcha. Just wanted to clarify on that. Okay. But yeah, still, I mean, this, this seems like introducing a new dimension to, to something, at least what I knew for sure, but I, I don't know too many people. It, it's just, it's an albatross. Most people are wearing around their neck for a super long time. So just to kind of circle back on some dates, I think you mentioned, so 2006 is when some of these programs rolled out. I think it's, it's been a little bit more realistic to do this since 2012. Has anything else happened recently had, that's changed the, the climate here? And where might we be looking for these things to change, maybe pertaining to the election that's coming up in November? Well, if you think about it this way, so 2009 is when income-based repayment got introduced. So 2009 is when IBR started being a thing. 2012-13 is when pay-as-you-earn got, got put into practice. And for people that don't know what that is, income-based repayment, IBR was a plan where you're allowed to pay 15% of your income towards your student loans. At the end of 25 years, your loans would be forgiven. Okay, So 15% of your income, 25 years. Before that, before 2009, there was an income-based program called Income Contingent Repayment, but it was 25 years of payments for 20% of your income. So virtually any lawyer on the planet would not benefit from that because they would pay their loans off over 25 years at 20% of their income basically in full. So then IBR 2009 dropped it to 15% of income. Then in 2000, approximately 13, pay-as-you-earn came into being, which allowed you to pay 10% of your income and instead of 25 years, it dropped it to 20 years. So super generous, right? And then in 2015 slash 16, you had revised pay as you earn, which lengthened the terms for forgiveness a little bit for graduate students. 
but it also introduced the idea of interest subsidies on your loans, which had never happened before. So I, I mentioned that history so that listeners understand that the trajectory of student loan uh, repayment programs and forgiveness programs in America has been more and more and more generous over time, not less and less and less. So what we've had over the past four years with President Trump is a situation where we've had no change in student loan forgiveness rules. So he's proposed several times eliminating student loan forgiveness and trying to, I mean, it's specifically like changing the public service loan forgiveness aspect of things. But that's never passed. The House Republicans tried to pass an overhaul of the student loan rules in 2017. Didn't pass. So I, I think that what you can be comfortable with is student loan forgiveness just kind of like as healthcare looks in America, is going to continue to get more and more progressive in terms of policy. And that has implications. That has big implications for how you, you, you treat your loans. Because the reason why paying off your debt works as a financial strategy is not because that's the right plan. It's because that gives you a high savings rate. So I want people to think about this analogy for a second. Pretend that you have some young children and the young children want to go to Disney World. And that's going to cost you 10 to 20 grand, okay? And let's say you're making 100 grand. So that's like a huge percentage of your annual earnings. So you're looking at those pleading young eyes and that want to go so bad and you, and you have to tell them no. Is it easier to tell them no if you have to pay 20000 towards your loans or is it easier to tell them no if you have to put $20,000 into your retirement and investments and savings because of trying to start a business, so the, the reality is, is starting a business, thinking about investing instead of paying off your debt to grow your net worth, thinking about growing your equity of your law firm instead of paying down your debt to grow your net worth, that's a lot harder to visualize for the average person. And paying down your debt is a very easy emotional response to a, a financial problem like student loans. And the thing is, is the problem got way, way worse in the past 20 years. And again, why did it get way worse. It's because in the positive goal of the government trying to expand access to education, they also made it way more expensive because they enabled the schools to act like greedy Wall Street banks and charge whatever they wanted to charge for the education without any regulation. And so we've had runaway costs for tuition. Now, how do you respond in a world like that? It's to, it's to if the math makes sense, treat your debt like a tax and then if you know all the loopholes, just like a good CPA would know the loopholes for income taxes, you can pay way, way less than you ever thought possible. Yeah. Well, that's actually interesting. So it does look like things are trending in the right direction, but I guess kind of the, the double-edged sword to all of the convenient programs is that this seems like to the outsider, it would be kind of complex to navigate this world. So, I mean, what would be like the best way for people if, you know, if this sounds really appealing to them? What's kind of a next step to, to take some action on this? Well, one thing I didn't mention was that the next step, if, if Joe Biden gets elected, he wants to reduce the payment of your income to 5% of your income instead of 10. And then he wants to make it so that there is no taxes on any forgiven student loan debt. So if that passed, it would make anybody that owes half of their income in student loan debt or more essentially want to go for forgiveness. So virtually every single lawyer that graduates with any level of law school debt at all, even at state universities, would want to go for forgiveness if Joe Biden's proposal passed. So I, I, I think that the next step is just to be aware that what matters actually is, is having a loan plan that takes into account what your life goals are, right? So if you want to become a law firm owner, if you want to start a family, buy a house, retire at 50, whatever your financial goals are, there's a way to do it where the 
student loans don't have to matter, but you have to know the rules about student loans to, to make them not matter. So I would say next steps for somebody would be to check out our podcast, the Student Loan Planner podcast. You can find that anywhere on Spotify, iTunes, et cetera. Just type in Student Loan Planner and you'll find it. And then the other thing is, is our website, studentloanplanner.com. We have a lot of free tools there, calculators and blog posts about lawyer-specific challenges paying back student loans. And the last thing I'll say is that, you know, Student Loan Planner, what we do is we make customized plans for people. And usually we save people a lot of money. We charge a flat fee for that service instead of a contingency-based fee. So people know exactly what they're getting themselves into. But our, our average lawyer client, and I'm happy to explain this number if, if you want, but our, our average lawyer client has saved a projected $39,280 from our consult service. So we, we basically do those customized plans and, and identify things people are doing wrong with their loans and their loan strategy to try to find projected savings. And I would say probably nine in 10 people, we find at least five figures of, of savings over the life of their loans just because they're doing something wrong with the way they're managing them. So it's kind of like one hour with us saves the average person a like a entry level Mercedes. Yeah, I was gonna say that's a that's a decent billable rate. <laughs> but I mean, the other thing yeah. too, though, is that there's there's obviously the financial cost that or the financial savings that people can have. But I mean, also just what keeps coming out to me is just this path that people have been getting railroaded on just by default for so many years. And if if that isn't something that's hanging over your head. I don't think you can put a price on it. And if I had to, I'd, I'd personally probably rate that higher than the, the 39,000, but it's not like it's a choice. You can get both. <laughs> so it's actually really good to, uh, well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I would just say lawyers are very smart and, and a lot of times lawyers want to read and know the regulations themselves because that's kind of what you went to school to do. Right. Right. The, the difference between that and what we do is I'm a chartered financial analyst. I used to be a bond trader. I did programming in Excel for my job basically. And, that's a very heavy math-based approach. And when you're dealing with something like student loans, where there's nine different repayment plans and all kinds of different tax filing strategies and loopholes based off if you live in a community property state with how you would distribute your income to whether or not both spouses have loans. I mean, there's all kinds of loopholes that are really technical, like to fund a nerd out on, but kind of weird to listen to. And it's kind of like you need to know how to model those loopholes. And so that's why this is a really interesting area for me personally is because Bond trading is complex and student loans are, I think, make bond trading look pretty easy by comparison, to be honest. Every, every few months, I learn something new about just the way that a loan servicer might calculate an obscure rule that means savings for people that understand it. And if student loans get super simple one day, then maybe I'll consider doing something different, right? It's like kind of like if a state and trust law gets super simple and nobody ever gets divorced anymore, right? And there's no second, third families to plan for or estate tax to plan for. Maybe some of our estate lawyers' friends might change the field. But, uh, but this is so interesting. It's so complex. And, and it's just so fascinating to me how somebody can, just for example, sign up for the repay plan. I'll give you an example. Two lawyers in New York, one of them high earning, one of them low earning, planning on pursuing public service loan forgiveness. The people on the phone they called told them, sign up for the repay plan. Well, that counts your spouse's income no matter what. So their payment for her loans is about 3000 a month because it's counting both of the spouse's incomes. Instead, she could file her taxes separately, sign up for the pay-as-you-earn plan, be getting credit towards forgiveness, the same credit, but the difference is she's paying 500 a month instead of 3000 a month. So that's $2,500 every month that they're losing because they didn't review their details, basically. So it's just really pretty staggering to see the, the kind of mistakes people make. I could go on for a while, I think, how many mistakes I see. 
it's pretty, pretty unreal. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, for $2,500 a month, you want to risk crossing your T's and dotting your I's yourself or <laughs> take a, take an hour and talk to a professional about it. But yeah, no, I definitely see a ton of potential with this Travis. And obviously I don't have to be the one who's judging that because you've already had a ton of success with this. But yeah. If anyone's listening to this and, and is interesting, I would absolutely recommend it. I've already think we've, we've gone over more subjects than I definitely thought that this podcast would take already. So if there's more where that came from at, at Travis's podcast, what was the name of the podcast again, Travis? Yeah, just type in Student Loan Planner anywhere that you listen to podcasts. And then our website is studentloanplanner.com and you can check out all the resources and look at the consulting service that we have. Okay, fantastic. And then we'll have that in the show notes for anyone listening. Thanks again, Travis, so much. This has been really, really eye-opening for me personally. I'm sure it's going to be eye-opening for the guests as well, but really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you, Jan. All right. And for everyone else, we'll be back next week at 8 a.m. Tuesday uh, for another episode of the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.